Disney's episode 14, The Little Mermaid, 1989. Welcome to another episode of Disney, a podcast for Disney fans. I am, as always, your host, Christopher. And in this episode, I am going to be covering a favorite. I mean, this is a classic. And I'm kind of going back to basics here because I haven't really covered a classic Disney movie in a really long time. And in this episode, I'm going to be talking about The Little Mermaid, the original animated version from 1989. I... I'm not talking about the live action version in this episode because, I mean, because, you know, like when there's a animated version and a live action version, it can be a lot of fun to compare the two like I did with Cinderella back in episode six. But I really feel like I need to rewatch the live action version before I give it proper coverage. And I will be covering the live action version on this podcast. I can guarantee that, but it just won't be for a little while yet. But uh, yeah, so this is the animated version from 1989, and I have honestly always really, really loved this movie. Like, even as a young kid, this was one of my favorites. It still is. I feel like most Disney fans, if not all Disney fans, cite The Little Mermaid as one of their favorite animated movies, one of their favorite animated Disney movies. So, you know... I am very, very excited to talk about it. So, The Little Mermaid was released on November 17th, 1989, written and directed by John Musker and Ron Clements. And, of course, it is based on Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tale, The Little Mermaid, which I have read, and I will be discussing some of the differences uh, later on in this episode, some of the differences between the Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale and this movie. There are quite a few significant differences. So the cast, The Little Mermaid, of course, stars Jodie Benson as Ariel slash Vanessa. She plays both Ariel and the human version of Ursula, which of course makes perfect sense because Ursula steals, well, she doesn't technically steal it, but she takes Ariel's voice and then uses it to deceive Eric. So it makes sense that Jodie Benson would play both of those roles. And then we have Pat Carroll as Ursula, Christopher Daniel Barnes as Prince Eric, Kenneth Mars as King Triton, Samuel E. Wright as Sebastian, Jason Marin as Flounder, Buddy Hackett as Scuttle, Ben Wright as Grimsby, Patty Edwards as Flotsam and Jetsam, Renee Aubergenois as Chef Louis, and Edie McClurg as Carlotta. And the music is by Alan Menken and Howard Ashman. So brief film synopsis here, although I would imagine that most everybody listening to this has seen this movie enough times that they might even be able to write a better synopsis than this one. So, <laughs> uh, but here it is. Despite her father's disapproval, Ariel, a young, curious, and adventurous mermaid who dreams of experiencing life on land, strikes a deal with the sea witch Ursula to trade her voice for a pair of legs. 
With the help of her friends, Sebastian the Crab, Flounder the Fish, and Scuttle the Seagull, Ariel embarks on a journey to win the heart of Prince Eric, a human prince with whom she has fallen in love. As she faces various obstacles and challenges, Ariel must discover the true meaning of love, make difficult choices, and find her own voice. So, uh, yeah, that's just a brief synopsis to uh, remind you of what the movie is about. But again, probably not even necessary if you're listening to this. Uh, So a few interesting bits of trivia. Some of these are my own that I put in here completely myself because I was already aware of them. And some are from IMDb and some are from Disney Wiki. And I, of course, as always, will link the IMDb page and the Disney Wiki page in the show notes for you if you want to read the entirety of them because there are quite a few. This first one, so actually I said that there were three sources, me, IMDb, and Disney Wiki, but there is actually a fourth source because I've mentioned on the podcast before that uh, I bought a magazine called Disney Celebrates 100 and, you know, it basically has some interesting facts about all of the major theatrically released animated movies that Disney has ever released. So, of course, The Little Mermaid is in there. And this is what that magazine has to say about The Little Mermaid. Following the deaths of Walt and Roy Disney, the studio produced a string of flops throughout the 1970s and 1980s. But just as the company was drowning in debt, it struck gold under the sea. The Little Mermaid, about an aquatic princess named Ariel who dreams of becoming human, was an instant hit and launched the Disney renaissance of the next decade. The studio's first fairy tale since Sleeping Beauty in 1959, The Little Mermaid also marked Disney's return to the musical format it had once made famous. The film is arguably defined by its sing-along soundtrack, but its biggest number almost ended up on the cutting room floor. At a test screening, kids grew restless during the nearly four-minute part of your world prompting then-CEO Jeffrey Katzenberg to consider axing it. But when he revealed the idea to lyricist Howard Ashman, he threatened to quit. Quote, If you cut it, they're not going to fall in love with Ariel and root for her for the rest of the film, Ashman argued, according to Jody Benson. There's not going to be any heart in it whatsoever. 34 years after The Little Mermaid made a splash, it's yet another classic to get a live-action reimagining with new songs composed by Hamilton's Lin-Manuel Miranda. So yeah, a lot of interesting stuff there that I did not know, that I hadn't been aware of. Uh, so for example, I had no idea that Part of Your World almost got cut. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine The Little Mermaid without Part of Your World? <laughs> I just, I can't. It wouldn't be the same. It's also pretty cool that this movie, like Cinderella, brought Disney out of a dark age. So this is actually the first Disney film to have music by Alan Menken, which that's also a really big deal because he is such a big name when it comes to major figures associated with Disney, you know, because he has written the music for so many movies that we love, you know, I mean, there's The Little Mermaid, there's Aladdin, there is uh, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, I think. I believe he did that. There's Beauty and the Beast. You know, I mean, these classic, classic, beloved movies that he had a hand in writing. Uh, And he's also, the music of, I mean, not the movies, but the music, which, you know, that is 
part of the movie. So, <laughs> uh, but he's also done some more recent stuff for Disney, like uh, Disenchanted, uh, you know, things like that. So, uh, yeah, just I think it's really cool that this is the first Disney movie that he ever did. Originally, Sebastian was to have an English accent. It was lyricist producer Howard Ashman who suggested he speak with a Caribbean accent. This opened the door to Calypso-style numbers like Under the Sea, which won the Academy Award. Christopher Daniel Barnes, who plays the voice of Eric, would go on to voice another Disney prince in Cinderella 3, A Twist in Time. And I think I mentioned that in that episode because I have covered Cinderella 3, A Twist in Time. It's episode 7. And I think I mentioned in that episode as well that he voiced the voice of Prince Eric. He voiced Prince Eric in uh, The Little Mermaid. At about four minutes into the movie, Mickey and Goofy appear in the crowd of merpeople as Triton makes his grand entrance. Now, both IMDb and Disney Wiki say that Kermit and Donald Duck can also be seen, but I only see Mickey and Goofy, but I am like 99.9% sure that I'm just not seeing them. Because even, you know, even Mickey and Goofy are hard to see. So I'm sure that Kermit and Donald Duck are there. Ariel is the first Disney princess to have biological siblings. And this is a really, really interesting one to me. Many merfolk appear in the film, but Ursula is a lesser-known type of mythological sea creature known as a Cicalia, human upper body and octopus lower body. And I've always wondered what her species is called. <laughs> you know, like, I was like, is she technically a mermaid? Is she just an octopus? Like, I was very confused about what she's supposed to be, but that's the answer. <laughs> Uh, a number of backgrounds used during the Kiss the Girl number were recycled from Disney's earlier film, The Rescuers. During Scuttle's disruption of the wedding between Eric and Vanessa, the Grand Duke and the King from Cinderella can be seen standing together in the background. And then lastly, the final defeat of Ursula is very similar to the climax of Howard Phillips Lovecraft's story, The Call of Cthulhu. Cthulhu is also a giant human-octopus hybrid, although his overall appearance is closer to that of Davy Jones, who is also vanquished by the prow of a ship being rammed into him. So, like I said, I'll have an IMDb link and a Disney Wiki link in the show notes for you in case you want to check out more. But uh, moving into observations about the movie, favorite moments, things like that, I honestly forgot how short this movie is. It's not even 90 minutes. It's really, really short, especially compared to the live-action version, which I think is over two hours. The music in the very beginning of this movie is so beautiful and haunting. I, I mean, the music in this movie is just wonderful. I mean, I think that's one of the many reasons why this movie has such the legacy that it does and why it's so enduring is the music. The music is just wonderful. And this is honestly... One of my favorite openings to any Disney movie ever. I don't think that it beats Beauty and the Beast, but it's pretty close. It's very close. I mean, this is just a wonderful, wonderful opening, especially with that music. And then during the Fathoms Below opening, one of the sailors says, A fine, strong wind and a following sea. King Triton must be in a friendly type mood. And I'm just thinking like, A, no, he's definitely not. <laughs> he very rarely is and b how do they know him by name like i get that there are legends of you know merfolk and 
that legend has kind of spread. And it would make sense because if merfolk really do exist, then chances are good that somebody has seen them, you know? So it makes sense that there's a legend, but how they know him by name, that I'm not sure. Like, I could understand if they were saying Poseidon or something like that, but King Triton, it's like, how do they know him by name? But anyway... We then get the part of your world melody playing as we see underwater. You know, we see the creatures and the mer people that live under there. And it's just so beautiful. Like every time I watch this movie, this opening just makes me feel things, you know, <laughs> I kind of get chills. It's just it's so beautiful. And we also learn very early on. I kind of forgot about this. It's when Sebastian is first introduced, we learn his whole name. It's apparently not just Sebastian, because he's introduced as the court composer right before the concert that Ariel doesn't show up to, and he's introduced as Horatio Felonius Ignatius Crustaceus Sebastian. <laughs> and I just, I totally forgot about that, you know? Like, I completely forgot that he has a longer name than just Sebastian, and that this movie reveals that. But I do find it really ironic that Sebastian is a court composer and that Atlantica has these concerts because even though they probably weren't thinking this far ahead back then, you know, it's not like they were thinking, I don't think anyway, I could be wrong, but I don't think that they had a story planned for a prequel this early, you know, but there is a prequel movie, The Little Mermaid 3, Ariel's Beginning, which to be completely honest with you, I don't plan on covering on this podcast just because it's not great, in my opinion. I think I've only seen it once, maybe twice, and I just didn't really enjoy myself. It's not a great story. The music is very lackluster. It's just not a great movie. So I don't plan on covering it unless I get enough people, you know, that are practically begging me to, and I highly doubt that's going to happen. <laughs> but yeah, there is a prequel movie, and... In that movie, one of the major threads of the plot is that King Triton has forbidden music in Atlantica. So it's kind of ironic that now he's at a point where he loves music to the extent that he has these concerts. But I mentioned earlier that, you know, Ariel doesn't bother to show up to this. And I have to say that it is funny watching this as an adult because... Ariel kind of annoys me in a way that she didn't watching this as a kid. You know, like as a kid, I was 100% Team Ariel. 100%. You know, like I felt that Triton was terrible. He was awful. Like he's treating his daughter so unfairly, you know, and I do still think that he's a little bit too harsh on her and that he doesn't respect her enough as an individual, you know? He's very authoritative. He has a terrible temper. I still feel that way. But there are certain things that, you know, I'm not Team Ariel on anymore. <laughs> and this concert is one of them. Like, this was clearly very important to Triton. And it's also something that she quite obviously agreed to. Because she even says later on, when she's reprimanded for it, that she forgot, you know? So clearly, she was asked to come to this concert, be a part of it, and she agreed. I mean, maybe she wasn't asked. He might have commanded it. <laughs> but still, it's something that she knew she was supposed to do, 
and it was something important to her. It was something, or I'm sorry, no, it wasn't. (laughs) It was something important to Triton, and it was something important to Sebastian, and she selfishly, you know, shrugs it off and forgets because it wasn't important to her, you know? And that's kind of typical of a (laughs) 16-year-old. She's being selfish, and she's exploring her own interests. She seemingly couldn't care less about her responsibilities, but at the same time, it's like, you know, when I was a 16-year-old, I didn't always want to go to school, you know? I didn't want to go to work. I did not want to go to the doctor. I did not want to go to the dentist. I still don't want to go to the dentist ever. (laughs) I didn't always want to go to family gatherings, but I did all of that because it was what was expected of me and it was my responsibility, you know? So there's a way that I would imagine anyway that she can still explore, you know, shipwrecks and stuff like that and explore underwater and, you know, go on adventures with flounder and whatnot, but do that at times that it doesn't conflict with something that's important to other people, you know? So I do feel very annoyed now as an adult that she does not show up to this concert. You have a different perspective when you get older. And I'm also definitely team flounder when he and Ariel explore the shipwreck because he doesn't think it's a good idea. You know, the ship looks scary to him and he's definitely scared, but he's trying to play it off, you know, as if he's not. And he gives other reasons as to why he doesn't want to go in there. So for example, he says, it looks damp in there. And I'm just like, you live in the ocean. Literally everything is damp. (laughs) You know, like, that's kind of a lousy excuse, Flounder. You can do better than that. But I feel like that's probably supposed to be the joke, especially since, like I said, he clearly doesn't want to admit that he is scared. And Ariel says, you know, Flounder, don't be such a guppy. Relax. Nothing is going to happen. Yeah, about that. Something does happen, you know? Like, Flounder is clearly more, I don't know what the right word is. I don't want to say smarter because intelligence and caution are not really the same thing. But, you know, he's a little bit more uh, aware of possible situations, I guess. That's probably a good way to put it. Because sure enough, they do get attacked by a shark. But, you know, before that happens, Ariel finds the fork. And that, of course, will come into play later on because... When she and Flounder encounter Scuttle, Scuttle says that it's a dinglehopper and that humans use it to comb their hair. And he also identifies a smoking pipe as a snarf blat. And, you know, I have to say, I've seen a lot of people refer to Scuttle as one of Disney's, like, stupid birds, you know, like Hey Hey from Moana. But I don't think that he's stupid. I don't agree. I mean, he's eccentric, but... I wouldn't call him stupid. I think that he's well aware that he's making stuff up. I think he does it playfully. You know, he knows because later in the movie, when he finds out about Vanessa actually being Ursula, he tries to warn everybody and says, when have I ever been wrong about anything? I mean, when it matters, you know, so clearly he identifies that he's wrong about stuff. And so to me, the way that I read his character he knows that that's not really a dinglehopper. He knows that that's not really a snarf blat. I mean, he would have to because those aren't even real words. He's making words up, you know? So he's just being creative. He's thinking of possible uses for these tools. 
And uh, he's also, I think, just trying to make Ariel happy because Ariel, obviously, she's like obsessed with humans and she collects human artifacts and stuff like that. And, you know, giving her this narrative of what these things might do is probably making her happy. So I don't think that there's any harm in it. But I'm just saying that, like, I don't think he's stupid. I don't think that we really see any evidence in the movie at all that he's stupid. I mean, even later on in the movie... Uh, he notices something different about Ariel after she gets transformed into a human, but he seems unable to piece together that she has legs, even though he's literally standing on one of her legs. And then Sebastian yells at him, calls him an idiot, and says, you know, she has legs, you idiot. And Scuttle says, I knew that. And I think he did. The way that he says it doesn't sound like he's trying to cover up for any kind of absent-mindedness or stupidity. I think he was messing around. But anyway, returning to the shipwreck, they do manage to get away from the shark. And then, of course, like I said, they meet up with Scuttle. And then we get our introduction to Ursula. She is played marvelously by the late Pat Carroll. I mean, this is just a phenomenal performance. Ursula is my third favorite Disney villain. I've actually already covered my first two. Like, my first favorite and my second favorite are in movies that I've already covered. Maleficent is my favorite, she's in Sleeping Beauty, and The Evil Queen is my second favorite, and she's in Snow White. And those are actually episodes one and two. But yeah, Ursula is just wonderful. <laughs> I love her attitude. I'll talk a little bit more later on in the episode about why it is that I love her so much, but she's just such a great character, such a memorable character, and she wouldn't be who she is. She wouldn't be the memorable character that she is without Pat Carroll. Now, one thing that is somewhat frustrating about this movie is that we don't really get enough, in my opinion anyway, enough background information about what Ursula's problem with King Triton is. It's never explicitly stated. There are implications. So Ursula, for example, implies that she used to live in the palace. Well, she does more than imply it. She directly says that she used to live in the palace. So there's definitely like a hint there that she was thrown out for some reason, possibly for practicing witchcraft. I don't know. I mean, well, actually, if you consider Serena Valentino's novel, Poor Unfortunate Soul, to be canon, then I do know. But as far as the movie itself is concerned, it's never explicitly stated. Now, here's the thing. As far as this franchise is concerned, and when I say franchise, I'm talking about the Disney franchise. I'm not talking about the Hans Christian Andersen original fairy tale or, you know, the B-list and C-list animated movies that have probably been made over the years. Like, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the Disney franchise. As far as that is concerned, interestingly enough, this is the only product that I know of, which is interesting because it's obviously the original product. This is the only product that I know of that does not say that Ursula is Triton's sister and therefore Ariel's aunt. I mean... Pretty much everything else, including the Broadway musical, the aforementioned novel Poor Unfortunate Soul by Serena Valentino, the new live-action version, all of those do explicitly state that Ursula is Triton's sister. So with that being said, I think it's safe to make that assumption, you know, regarding this movie. If everything else that Disney has been attached to says <laughs> that they are siblings— and there's nothing in this movie that directly negates that, then I think it's safe to make that assumption that there are also siblings here. Especially since, like I said, she does say that she used to live in the palace. 
That implies that she was once royalty. And if she was once royalty, then I would say that there's very likely a relation to Triton. I really do love her introductory scene, though. You know, she's all like, now look at me, wasted away to practically nothing. You know, she's so dramatic. <laughs> and I made a meme a few years ago that if I can find it, I'll put it in the show notes. I'm not making any promises because I've got to make sure I can find it first. But I did make a meme a few years ago from that scene. Uh, Ariel then shortly after sings Part of Your World. And interestingly... She doesn't actually ever say part of your world in this first rendition of it, because there is a reprise of it later in the movie when she does say part of your world. But in this version, she only ever says part of that world. And that's interesting because the song is still called part of your world, even though she says that world. But it makes perfect sense because she hasn't met Eric yet. So... If she were singing part of your world, who is you? I guess just humanity in general, but it still doesn't make as much sense as it would if she had already met Eric. So once she does meet Eric, that's when there's a reprise of the song and she now sings part of your world. Anyway, there is a line in part of your world in which she sings, Betcha on land, they understand. Bet they don't reprimand their daughters. And I'm like, I bet you you're wrong. <laughs> but this is just one of many examples. I will cover a couple more, but there are so many examples in this movie of Ariel being young and naive, inexperienced, and not experienced enough to really be making this life-changing decision for herself. And again, that's why I'm, as an adult, a little less Team Ariel than I was when I was a kid, because... Even though I don't agree with Triton, I don't think it's right to vilify an entire species of beings. You know, like, that's racism. <laughs> it is. It's just straight up racism. And I don't think that it's right for Triton to believe that all humans are evil because he had a bad experience with one or maybe one ship. You know, like, humans are really just like merfolk. You know, in that some of them are good and some of them are bad, you know, and we know that that's the case with merfolk because Ursula, you know, <laughs> I mean, she's not a mermaid as I already covered, but she's still, I think, probably considered merfolk. You know what I mean? Especially if she and Triton are related. But yeah, I mean, this just really goes to show how naive she is because she's in for a very, very rude awakening if she thinks that humans don't reprimand their children. Some humans probably reprimand their children even worse than Triton does. In fact, I know they do. After part of your world, Ariel sees uh, a ship go over, you know, above. And so she swims up to the surface and sees the ship. And she sees that there's some sort of celebration going on because they're lighting up fireworks into the sky. And this scene is so colorful. It's so beautiful. I feel like it's especially impressive when you look at that scene and think to yourself, this was 1989. Like, it's really impressive looking at it. It's very beautiful. It's a very, very beautiful scene. And Eric, we then meet Eric more properly. We see him near the beginning of the movie uh, during Fathoms Below, but I would say that this is more of like a proper introduction uh, because we learn a little bit more about him. But he says that he'll know when he finds the right woman because it'll hit him like lightning. And then <laughs> there is actual lightning. As soon as he says that, 
and the storm starts. So Eric is clearly a witch. Just saying. But speaking of the storm sequence, it's really cool because the animation is foggy and kind of filmy. Like, I don't know how to explain it. You know, you probably, if you can imagine the scene, like if you can think of the scene in your mind, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. And if you don't, then next time you watch the movie, try to keep that in mind. Because it does seem like there's like a film or a fog. And I love that because it's so immersive. You know, it kind of makes you feel like you're in that storm with them. And I just love that they did that. But it's so sweet that Eric goes back for Max, his dog, you know, and he puts his own life at risk to save Max. And in fact, he would have died had it not been for Ariel. You know, he would have drowned. But I'm not sure how he survived that explosion, though. He had to have jumped ship at the last possible second. The very last possible millisecond he jumped off that ship. That had to have been what happened. Shortly after that, Ursula cooks up her plan to get revenge on Triton. Like I said, not a whole lot of backstory here as far as like why she's angry with Triton, but I do definitely recommend reading Poor Unfortunate Soul by Serena Valentino. That'll give you a little bit more insight. And the live action movie, I don't know. It doesn't really go into too much more detail than this movie does, which kind of surprised me. Like I honestly really expected Ursula to be a little bit more sympathetic in the live action version and for us to understand her motivations better, for us to get like flashback scenes of her and Triton. And I was really expecting that. We didn't get that. And I think honestly, like that was my biggest disappointment about that movie. I don't want to go into a lot of detail about the live action version because that's not really what I'm talking about here. Eventually I will talk about that in a future episode, but yeah, just I really, really wish that it would have given us more insight into Ursula's past, her background. It does, like I said, confirm that she and Triton are siblings, but beyond that, it doesn't give us any info at all about what her issue with Triton is. Just little hints and implications like this movie does. But uh, she wants revenge on Triton anyway. She wants to take the kingdom back. She wants to be queen of the sea. And... She cooks up her plan to get revenge on him when she's spying on Ariel and realizes that Ariel is infatuated with Eric. And you're probably going to hear me use that word a lot in this episode because I am not going to say <laughs> that she's in love with him. I'm sorry, but she's not. Uh, she doesn't know a single thing about him other than that he's a prince and he has a dog and that he doesn't feel that he's met the right woman yet. That's literally all she knows about him. You cannot, and I want to say that again, you cannot love a person based only on that. That's not enough information for you to fall in love with someone. You can be infatuated with them. You can be attracted to them, absolutely. But you don't fall in love with someone until you know who they are as a person. That's just my personal belief. It's okay if you disagree with me. If you're somebody who believes in love at first sight, then more power to you. But I personally don't. So I am not going to be saying that she's in love with him. I'm going to be saying that she's infatuated with him, that she's attracted to him, because I think that that's exactly what is happening here, especially since she's 16 and this is the first human male that she has ever seen. So after rescuing Eric, Ariel becomes kind of obsessed with him and starts singing, uh, you know, part of your world to herself or humming it. Uh, 
and everyone notices that she's acting differently, that she's behaving differently. Her sisters notice it. Her father notices it. And her sisters tell Triton that, isn't it obvious? She's in love. And of course, he assumes that it's a merman that she's in love with, which it's not. Uh, But Sebastian, in an effort to convince Ariel that life is better where she is, sings Under the Sea. And I think that this might be my favorite song in the movie. I love the Caribbean calypso sound, the steel drums. I just love it. This song is one of my favorite Disney songs of all time, hands down. And easily, this song is partly what makes this movie for me. But unfortunately, he doesn't do it on purpose, but Sebastian does accidentally let it slip to King Triton that Ariel is, in fact, infatuated with a human. Because Triton suspects that Ariel is in love because of what her sister said to him. And so he calls upon Sebastian to try to get information out of him about the merman that she's in love with because he thinks that Sebastian knows about it. But Sebastian thinks that Triton knows that she has fallen in love with a human. So he says, like, you know, I'm sorry, your majesty. I'm sorry. I tried to stop her. I tried to tell her that humans are terrible, but she wouldn't listen to me. And so he accidentally lets it slip. He doesn't mean to. And this unfortunately leads to a very emotionally devastating scene between uh, Triton and Ariel because Flounder has somehow gifted her Eric's statue because earlier in the movie, Grimsby gifts Eric a statue of Eric for his birthday. And Eric doesn't seem to, you know, he doesn't seem too uh, interested in it. It's not really his thing. Uh, But he pretends to be appreciative of it and everything. But anyway, that makes it to the bottom of the ocean when the ship wrecks. And somehow, Flounder got that statue into Ariel's grotto with the rest of her human collection. And I don't know how he did that. I assume he had help because there's no way. It's (laughs) just completely impossible that that little tiny Flounder fish you know, dragged that big heavy statue, which is probably made out of like stone or marble or something like that, into that grotto. So he probably had help. But even then, it doesn't seem to me like there's an opening anywhere in the grotto that would have been large enough for that to go through. But anyway, not important. Moving on. That's nitpicky. Like I said, this is a very emotionally devastating scene because Ariel is just head over heels, happy with this statue. She loves it. She thanks Flounder and says that he's the best and everything, but Triton shows up at the grotto and tries to, you know, quote, talk sense into Ariel by telling her that, you know, you're a mermaid, he's a human, it's forbidden, you know, this is not allowed, and humans are all terrible, they're all evil, they're all barbarians, and Ariel's not listening, so... Triton says, you know, so help me, Ariel, I am going to talk some sense into you, and if this is what it takes to do it, then so be it. And he uses his trident to destroy her entire human artifact collection, ending with the statue. And I do feel terribly sorry for Ariel in this scene, especially because she very likely considers Sebastian a friend, and she feels that he betrayed her, right? She doesn't know that Sebastian accidentally let it out. She thinks that Sebastian just went to the king and was like, so guess what? I've got something to tell you, which isn't what happened, but that's what she thinks. 
she even says after Flotsam and Jetsam, you know, convince her to go see Ursula, she says to Sebastian, you know, why don't you go tell my father? You're good at that. So she doesn't know that Sebastian didn't mean to tell. So between all of this important stuff of hers, you know, important to her, this stuff is important to her. And regardless of her age, that's something that I think is completely, you know, understandable. I mean, I can't imagine like somebody destroying my Funko Pop collection, <laughs> you know, or somebody destroying my my uh, music and movie collection like that would just be devastating to me. So I get it. Like, this is really, really hard to watch. And Triton, his features even seem to soften a little bit right before he leaves the grotto. So I think that even he might be acknowledging that I might have gone too far. I mean, later on when he realizes that Ariel is missing, he clearly seems to even be blaming himself because he says, oh, what have I done? You know, he's acknowledging that he pushed her away. But yeah, like I said, Flotsam and Jetsam, Ariel's, or yeah, Ursula's uh, minions, they go to Ariel's grotto and convince her to make a deal with Ursula. So Ariel follows them to Ursula's lair. And I have to say, I love the shot of Ursula's lair. The visual of it, the color scheme, it's such a beautiful shot. I mean, between the cinematography and the music, it's absolutely no wonder at all why this movie endures. And as I already said, I love Ursula. She's my third favorite Disney villain. You know, she's sultry. She's sexual. She's confident. I love her attitude. You know, just everything about her. And I'm trying to save comparisons between this version and the live action version for when I cover the live action version. Because like I said, I'm really just talking about the animated version in this episode. But I do want to say here that even though I adore Melissa McCarthy's rendition of Poor Unfortunate Souls, I really do. I love it. <laughs> I do hate that it takes out my favorite part of the song, which is, uh, you know, you'll have your looks, your pretty face, and don't underestimate the importance of body language. Ha! <laughs> I love that part so much. <laughs> it's my favorite part of the song. And the uh, the live action version took that part out. But I'm also not wondering why, <laughs> because one thing that I really, really honed in on on this rewatch, you know, that I don't know that I noticed to the extent that I did now is, like I said, just how sexual Ursula is. I mean... There's a shot of the camera zooming in on her breasts as she jiggles them. And when she sings that body language line in Poor Unfortunate Souls, she makes a thrusting motion with her hips. So it's pretty obvious what she means by body language, <laughs> what she's implying there. So I guess it's pretty understandable why they took that out. I personally would have kept it in because I think that that's partly what makes Ursula Ursula, but I also do understand why they took it out. And I'm also going to link you in the show notes to Melinda Kathleen Reese's Google Translate parody of this song of Poor Unfortunate Souls because it's so funny. And you're also definitely going to want to stick around until the very, very end of this episode because my good friend Amanda has something special for you. But anyway... Ariel signs Ursula's scroll, the contract, which means that she clearly knows how to write, and this creates a plot hole, because if she can write 
then why didn't she just find pen and paper in that castle? There had to have been plenty in that castle. I mean, he's royalty, right? So they must frequently write letters and stuff. So why didn't she just find pen and paper and write a letter to Eric explaining to him what the situation was? I get that there wouldn't have been a movie then, (laughs) but... Still, it's a bit of a plot hole, and it's one that fans have been talking about for years and years, and the live-action version even puts something into the story. I don't want to say what it is, because first of all, if you haven't seen the live-action version, it's somewhat of a spoiler, you know, because it is a change that they made to the story. It's not a major change, but it is a change. And second of all, I want to save it for when I actually talk about that movie, but They did change something so that that was no longer a plot hole. But yeah, Ursula says to Ariel that in exchange for making her human, she wants her voice, hence the body language line. And I mean, it is so obvious that Ursula has something sinister planned with her voice. It's so obvious. I mean, she doesn't even try to hide it. She laughs wickedly. You know, she says to Flotsam and Jetsam, Now I've got her, boys, you know? I mean, it's so clear that her motivations are evil, and Ariel still signs that scroll. I get that she's 16, I get that she's desperate, but still, I think that this is further proof that she's far too young and naive to be making such a life-changing decision. But one of my favorite Disney movies, uh, you know, I mean, I, I have a lot of favorites, so that's probably not saying much, but... A Disney movie that I really, really love is Luca, and I definitely, definitely, I guarantee you, because it's one of my favorites, like I said, uh, I guarantee you that I will be covering that on the podcast in the future, but uh, Luca does definitely have a lot of parallels with The Little Mermaid. You know, it's about a sea creature that is interested in humans, wants to know more about humans, and His parents don't approve. They think that humans are dangerous. They don't want him on the surface. They don't want him around humans. And he keeps breaking their rules by going to the surface. I don't want to spoil how it ends, just in case you haven't seen Luca, but there are so many similarities. I have to believe that Luca took some inspiration from this movie. She's not really a major character, but we meet Carlotta um, shortly after... Ariel makes the deal with Ursula and shows up on the surface as a human. Uh, she's taken in, uh, and Carlotta takes care of her. You know, she uh, she draws her a bath, and she's very, very caring. She's a wonderful character, even though she's not really a major character. In fact, later in the movie, she gets really, really frustrated and angry with Chef Louis, and I'm like, yeah, I would be too. <laughs> that man is insane. Uh, but anyway Carlotta is wearing an outfit that's nearly identical to the outfit that Cinderella wears in Cinderella you know not the the ball gown but the you know the apron and the brown and blue you know it's almost the same and then this is where you know as I teased earlier the dinglehopper comes back into play because Ariel picks her fork up off the dinner table and starts combing her hair with it (laughs) (laughs) and it's such a funny scene it's so funny especially because of you know the look on eric's face and the look on grimsby's face you know they're just like okay and then to make it even funnier she takes grimsby's pipe and tries to play music out of it 
which blows a bunch of ash into his face. (laughs) You know, this is like one of my favorite styles of humor. And apparently there's a name for it. My brother has shared it with me before, but I don't remember what it is. But one of my favorite styles of humor, like basically a fish out of water, right? Somebody, in this case, kind of literally, (laughs) somebody who is in an environment that they're not familiar with. And so they don't understand the customs. So their behavior seems strange and everybody else's behavior seems strange to them. That tends to create for some really great humor. So some examples off the top of my head are Hocus Pocus, Dark Shadows, the movie, uh, Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. You know, those are all examples of comedies that are funny in part because of somebody not understanding the customs of the time or place that they're in. And that's kind of what we're seeing here. It's not as focused on that. You know, it's not as big a part of the story as uh, the other examples that I gave are, but it's still something that does come into play, and I just find it hilarious. I mentioned Chef Louis. Uh, he, of course, is, like I said, played by Rene Aubergenois, who I know primarily as Odo from Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And so hearing him sing Les Poisson, I couldn't help but, <laughs> you know, imagine Odo singing this, which was really, really funny to imagine. But like I said, he really, really annoys me because he's clearly insane. I mean, he kind of reminds me of uh, Mabel from Ratatouille. I talked about how she's crazy because, you know, of the great lengths that she goes to to kill these rats, even after they've left her house, even after they're out of her house, you know, and she completely destroys her house, completely wrecks it, ruins it, trying to kill these rats. And similarly, Chef Louis completely makes a mess of the kitchen and injures himself trying to catch Sebastian. It's absolutely ridiculous, and I completely am on board with Carlotta's anger with him. But Le Poisson, I took French for six years, middle school and high school, so most of the French lyrics in this song I actually am able to understand. There aren't a lot of French lyrics. Most of it is in English, but there are a few, and I actually was able to understand them. So, for example... Uh, He sings, you know, first I cut off their heads, then I pull out their bones. Ah, may we. Ça c'est toujours delish. And he's saying, ah, but yes, that's always delicious. And I don't really care a whole lot for Les Poisson, to be honest. In fact, it's not in the live action version and I didn't miss it. (laughs) Uh, But one thing that I noticed on this watch that I don't think I'd ever noticed before is that there are definitely some melodic similarities to Be Our Guest, which is funny because... There are also parts of that song that are in French. Now, is that intentional? I don't know. But, you know, the song Les Poisons, like he sings, like, Les Poisons, Les Poisons, and that's the same melody, right? Be our guest, be our guest. So I was like, yeah, this reminds me of Be Our Guest, and I didn't notice that until now. In fact, even the syllables match up. There are a lot of lines in Les Poisons that you could sing to the melody of Be Our Guest, and it would work. So I kind of have to believe that it was intentional. Then we get Kiss the Girl, another one of my favorites. I don't like it as much as uh, Under the Sea, but it's pretty close. And I also, of course, love Ursula's song. That might even be my favorite villain song. Uh, But, you know, with Kiss the Girl, I do get the controversy around it. If you're not familiar with what I'm talking about, there are some people who have kind of, uh, you know, said that that song is problematic because it's encouraging you know, kissing someone without knowing, you know, without their consent. But here's the thing. 
Sebastian is not suggesting that Eric kiss her without consent. You have to listen to this song in the context of the movie because Sebastian is the one singing it and he knows that Ariel would consent to a kiss, right? He knows that. He knows how badly Ariel wants that kiss. He also knows how much depends on it because he knows of the deal that she struck with Ursula. So, you know, I get the controversy, but at the same time, you know, I think it's ultimately harmless. But anyway, uh, you know, I've seen some people defend Ursula and make the claim that she's not even really a villain because she makes it clear to Ariel from the get-go what the deal is and Ariel agrees, you know? Like, she tells her exactly what will happen if she doesn't get kissed by Eric. But the thing is, she cheats. That's, I think, what the problem is. She cheats first by having Flotsam and Jetsam tip the boat, just as Eric is about to kiss her, and then by tricking Eric as Vanessa. You know, that was not part of the plan. Like, Ariel did not know about that. That was cheating. So I think that that's really where the evil comes from. And, you know, like I said, I think she made it pretty clear, too. And maybe that's partly why people say that. Because it's no mystery that she has evil intentions, like I already said. She makes it pretty clear in that song. I mean, she does say that, you know, I've mended my ways and, you know, uh, I'm not the evil witch that I used to be. Like, she claims that she's changed in Poor Unfortunate Souls. But then again, with her wicked sinister laughter and, you know, saying to Flotsam and Jetsam that I've got her boys, like, it's pretty obvious, you know? So... Maybe that's where people are coming from, but at the end of the day, I would still argue that she cheats. But speaking of Vanessa, though, I have also always loved the scene of Eric looking out at the water as Vanessa approaches, you know, on the shoreline. Like, she's walking across the shoreline singing, and there's just something very haunting about it to me, you know? Like, she looks like a siren or a ghost. It's eerie and haunting, but also beautiful at the same time. And I just love this scene so much. But Ariel gets excited because Scuttle reveals that Eric is getting married. But then, of course, she's hurt because she discovers that it's to someone else. And we know that it's Ursula and that she has him under a spell. But Ariel doesn't know that. And I mentioned in my Cinderella 3, A Twist in Time discussion, that there's a similar plot element there. You know, because... Uh, Lady Tremaine uses the fairy godmother's wand to reverse time and also then uses the wand to put a spell on the prince to make him think that Anastasia is Cinderella. You know, that Anastasia is the woman that he uh, danced with at the ball. And Cinderella approaches the prince and tries to get his attention, but he doesn't know who she is because he thinks Anastasia is his love. So uh, very similar plot there, just that part of it. I'm not saying that the entirety of A Twist in Time is basically The Little Mermaid, because no, it's not. But <laughs> that little aspect of it is definitely similar. And then uh, Vanessa is singing to herself in her mirror. And this is when Scuttle, you know, he's looking in on her and he realizes that Vanessa is actually Ursula. But uh, Vanessa sings, what a lovely little bride I'll make, my dear, I'll look divine. And I can't help but think that that's gotta be a direct nod to the drag performer Divine, because that is actually the drag performer who inspired Ursula. They based Ursula on Divine. 
And if you go look at pictures of Divine, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. And I do love as well how once Ariel does find out the truth about Vanessa actually being Ursula, she immediately jumps into action. You know, she has like this angry, determined look on her face, jumps into the water and takes action. And I just love that. You know, this is one of the first times that I think we've really seen a Disney princess step up like that. I mean, I would argue that like Ilanwi in The Black Cauldron is a pretty headstrong character who takes action for herself and, you know, is just one of those more headstrong characters. But unfortunately, for some reason, even though she is literally a Disney princess, <laughs> she's not considered a Disney princess. So uh, that's why I'm not counting her. As far as like the official lineup of Disney princesses are concerned, I think everyone up till Ariel, obviously you'll have, you know, Belle, who I would say is even more headstrong and more independent than Ariel is, uh, Mulan and, you know, characters like that. You'll have much more headstrong characters later on. But I mean, up till this point in Disney's history, I would say Ariel is definitely the most headstrong, the most independent uh, character. I also do really love the scene when Vanessa transforms back into Ursula. It's pretty scary, to be honest. And I remember being a kid and being scared of Ursula, especially her death scene. I was scared. <laughs> I mean, I always loved the movie, but I always found, uh, you know, some of her scenes to be pretty frightening. And she's definitely scary when she transforms back into her true form and then kind of like slithers across the ship and people on the ship see that and scream. And I'm like, yeah, I'm with you. I would too. Uh, but she becomes huge because, you know, she makes a deal with Triton. Triton decides to give up his, uh, you know, whatever, like his, his, his crown, his trident, and she transforms him into one of those little, like, slugs or whatever they are. The people that she's, you know, the merfolk that she has imprisoned in what she calls her garden, which is also incredibly evil. And uh, she becomes really, 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 really big after she takes the trident. And, uh, you know, tries repeatedly to kill Ariel and Eric. But Eric takes action by getting aboard a ship and driving the, uh, you know, the front end of it into Ursula and impaling her. But of course, you know, she had to <laughs> uh, get those words in. I mean, she's a Disney villain, so she wouldn't be a Disney villain. I mean, I'm sure there are, there probably are Disney villains who don't, but almost every single Disney villain, it's like a Disney villain rite of passage. They have to call somebody a fool. <laughs> and so sure enough, she gets those words in. Shortly before she dies, she calls Ariel and Eric, you pitiful, insignificant fools. <laughs> like I said, definitely a Disney villain thing. But then after Ursula is defeated, Sebastian says to Triton, it's like I always say, your majesty, children got to be free to lead their own lives. And, you know, Sebastian is a great character because he's definitely a little bit of a sycophant you know like he says whatever he thinks triton wants to hear you know because earlier in the movie he kind of lands himself into some trouble that way by saying you know if i were ariel's parent i would be so hard on her you know i would show her who's boss i would make sure she knows the rule of the land and you know and then triton is like you're absolutely right sebastian 
Ariel does need someone heavy-handed to watch over her, and that's why you are just the crab to do it. You know, which isn't what Sebastian wanted, but he kind of made himself that bed. So uh, the thing is, though, is that Triton clearly knows that. I think he sees right through it because he even says, you always say that. <laughs> but I absolutely love the very ending of this movie. It always makes me feel things. It's just so visually beautiful and the melody of part of your world playing. It's just it always chokes me up a little bit, especially when Triton and Ariel say goodbye to each other and you know, Ariel says, I love you, daddy. And just, oh, it's so beautiful. So yeah, this ending always gets me. So yeah, that is The Little Mermaid, the animated version from 1989. Before I move into my rating, I want to discuss a few ways that this story differs from the Hans Christian Andersen original fairy tale. Now, if you have not read that original fairy tale and you would like to, then I would recommend you skipping ahead a little bit or putting me on mute for a little bit or whatever, because I am going to spoil that story and talk about how it ends and everything. So if you don't want to know that, then skip ahead a few minutes. But the fairy tale was written in 1837 by uh, Danish fairy tale writer Hans Christian Andersen. It is widely believed to have been an intentional allegory for his sexuality because uh, the, the general belief is that Hans Christian Andersen was either gay or bi and frequently had you know, feelings and attraction toward other men, even wrote them letters and was always rejected because, you know, the belief was that it was unnatural for two men to be together. And so he created the story of a mermaid falling in love with someone from another species, even though, you know, the general idea was that that wasn't right. It was forbidden, right? It was taboo. So that's the general consensus is that that was the, uh, the idea behind the story. But uh, one major difference is that in the original story, we never learn what the mermaid's name is. She's only ever referred to as the Little Mermaid or the Mermaid. You know, we never find out what her name is. Disney is what gave her the name Ariel. And the mermaid's motivation in the story is very, very different from Ariel's because it's not just for love. It's not just that she's fallen in love with or become infatuated with a human and wants to become human to be with him. And, you know, even in the movie, that's not necessarily her major motivation. Like, that's not her main motivation, because even before meeting Eric, she was fascinated by humans and wanted to be a human. I mean, the whole song, Part of Your World, that's what that's about. And that's before she meets Eric. So he's not the major motivation, but he does become a major motivation, you know, or at least a big part of her motivation after she meets him. But in the fairy tale, mermaids are said not to have souls. Humans have souls, mermaids don't. And so when a mermaid dies, they die. Whereas when humans die, they live on, they go to heaven or whatever, you know? So she wants to be human because she wants to have an immortal soul. That's the main motivation behind her actions. Ursula in the original fairy tale also does not have a name. We don't know what her name is. She's only ever referred to as the sea witch. And she's a much more neutral character. In fact, after the mermaid makes the deal with her, I don't think we even hear or see of the witch again. Like, I don't think she ever even shows up in the story again. So definitely a major difference there. And then another big difference is that in the movie, in the Disney movie, 
the cost that Ariel pays for being human is that she gives her voice to Ursula. It's much, much more graphic and, you know, grotesque in the original story. Because not only does she sacrifice her voice, but she also endures excruciating pain every time she takes a step with her legs. I think the way that it's described is that it feels like glass, like glass shards are cutting into her feet every time she walks. So yeah, much more grisly. Also, her love is not reciprocated because like I said, I think that as I've heard anyway, that was kind of the allegory is uh, Anderson was falling in love with, you know, men that didn't return the affection and he instead marries a princess from a neighboring kingdom and that creates a completely different ending. The ending is totally different. It does not have the happy ending that the Disney movie does. The mermaid is completely heartbroken that the prince does not love her and has instead married somebody else. And so she is given a choice. She can either kill the prince with a knife, let his blood fall on her feet and return to being a mermaid and, you know, live a long life as a mermaid, or she can basically sacrifice herself, you know? And so she chooses the latter. She cannot bring herself to kill the prince. And so she jumps into the water and dissolves into sea foam, becoming an earthbound spirit who can now earn a soul through good deeds. So basically she kills herself at the end of the story. So anyway, moving into my rating, this is an easy nine out of 10 for me. The only reason I'm not giving it a 10 out of 10 is that there are animated Disney movies that I would put above this. So it doesn't quite feel right to give it a 10. Plus there is that plot hole of Ariel can clearly read and write yet doesn't write a letter to Eric. (laughs) Uh, But aside from that, and you know, that's something that's easy for me to let go. I'm still able to watch this movie and love it and enjoy it. So it's not that bothersome. But, I mean, this is such a beloved classic. I absolutely adore Ursula. I love Sebastian. The characters are just memorable. The visuals and the cinematography are amazing. The music is amazing. There's very little to complain about here. Like I said, this movie has always been one of my favorite Disney movies. And, I mean, what Disney fan doesn't love this movie? (laughs) So, yeah. So I did get a little bit of feedback for The Little Mermaid. Uh, Jess says, my favorite Disney movie and character. The opening scene where we first see Atlantica is one of my favorite scenes. There's just something about that music. I remember when I was 18, watching this again for the first time since childhood and bawling my eyes out when that music started playing, feeling like a little kid again. So that's awesome. And like I said, yeah, completely agree. It's definitely one of my favorite openings. So if you would like to contribute feedback to the podcast, I would love that. That would make me so happy. You can do that by emailing me at disneyshpodcast at gmail.com. Join the Facebook group and post something there at facebook.com slash groups slash disneyshpodcast. Follow the Instagram page, which is at disneyshpodcast. And you're also welcome to follow my personal Instagram page, which is The Lost Passenger. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever it is that you're listening. That way you'll never miss a new episode. I would also be very, very appreciative if you spread the word. You know, if you're enjoying the podcast, tell your friends about it. Uh, Get them to listen to. That would make me very, very happy. And next up on the podcast is The Little Mermaid 2, Return to the Sea. 
But until then, this has been Disneyish reminding you that children got to be free to lead their own lives. Except when they're 16 and want to run away with someone whom they literally just met. In the past I've been a nasty They weren't kidding when they called me well a witch But you'll find that nowadays I've mended all my ways Repented, seen the light and made a switch True, yes And I fortunately know a little magic It's a talent that I always have possessed And here lately, please don't laugh I use it on behalf of the miserable, lonely, and depressed, pathetic, poor, unfortunate souls in pain, in need. This one longing to be thinner, that one wants to get the girl, and do I help them? Yes, indeed. Those poor, unfortunate souls, so sad, but true. They come flocking to my cauldron, crying, Spells, Ursula, please! And I help them. Yes, I do. Now it's happened once or twice. Someone couldn't pay the price, and I'm afraid I had to rake across the coals. Yes, I've had the odd complaint, but on the whole, I've been a saint. To those poor, unfortunate souls! have your looks, your pretty face, and don't underestimate the importance of body language. <laughs> the men up there don't like a lot of blabber. They think a girl who gossips is a bore. Yes, on land it's much preferred for ladies not to say a word. And after all, dear, what is idle prattle for? Come on, they're not all that impressed with conversation. True gentlemen avoid it when they can But they don't and swoon and fawn On a lady who's withdrawn And it's she who holds her tongue Who gets the man Come on you Poor unfortunate soul Go ahead Make your choice I'm a very busy woman And I haven't got all day It won't cost much Just your voice You poor unfortunate soul If you want to cross the bridge, my sweet, you've got to pay the toll. Take a gulp and take a breath and go ahead and sign the scroll. Flotsam some jets and now I've got her, boys. The boss is on a roll. You po-